Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome to the Middle East political science podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by Cinzia Bianco of the European Council on Foreign Relations and author of the brand new book, The Gulf Monarchies After the Arab Spring, Threats and Security, which is published by Manchester University Press. Uh, Cinzia, thanks for coming back onto the program. Thanks a lot for having me, Mark. Congratulations on the book. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about it and what the motivation was for your writing it and um, kind of what you think the major contribution is? Thank you. Um, so I really wanted to write this book because obviously over the past, um, let's say, 10, 10 years, more or less, there's been a lot of thinking about the, the Gulf, and particularly the Gulf monarchies from a geopolitical point of view, and even from uh, international relations and security theory point of view. Um, and so obviously, because this has developed in a context of, let's say, uh, more instability after the so-called Arab Spring and all that followed tensions, uh, uh, both at the regional and extra regional level, um, there has been, there was, in my opinion, the tendency to sort of overinflate threats and uh, create a very vague description of security perceptions uh, of the different Gulf monarchies, whereby anything and everything was described as a threat or um, allegedly perceived as a threat or treated as a threat. Um, whereas I thought that, um, you know, that there was a whole spectrum in the security perceptions of every single Gulf um, regime or government um, of how a danger or an issue was perceived. And so I wanted to basically dig deeper and try to give uh, more uh, thought uh, and more details to the description of security perceptions mm -hmm. uh, in the Gulf monarchies. Mm -hmm. And so tell us a little bit then about like, what did you actually do? What was the nature of the research which informed the book? So I started off by basically building up a theoretical framework and I borrowed uh, different elements from different um, domains and different uh, literatures. I borrowed a lot from the area literature, of course, but then I also wanted to add some specific elements from uh, security studies. And mm -hmm. of course, you know, Barry Busan was a very important point of reference for me uh, and the idea that, you know, that security is a matter of degree, um, that is a lot uh, it's present a lot in, in constructivists, uh, but also um, a little bit from political psychology as well, because, you know, as we know from the area literature, for example, um, obviously, and also from empirical observation, obviously, these are autocratic systems. So, so when you're looking to decode and analyze and spell out the security perceptions of the country, you also are looking at the leadership. You're looking at... Um, even, you know, sort of cognitive factors, um, their so socialization, uh, their own personal experiences, uh, and some of these elements that really do contribute to how um, a threat or an issue is viewed by the leadership and therefore also impacts how it is treated and viewed by the regime, the state. So and after I built this, this theoretical ahead. framework, 
um, once I built the th theoretical framework, I then wanted to look at uh, each of the six countries individually. And so I have six chapters that basically try to describe these security perceptions in each and every one of the uh, governments in the Gulf Cooperation Council, the six monarchies of the, of the Gulf, um, and how these have changed in the 10 years after the Arab Spring. The starting point is all, always how the Arab Spring has been perceived, what kind of impact it has had, because it's almost like a trauma um, from the, the point of view of regimes in the, and their security perceptions. And, and then starting from there, sort of to see how uh, the other uh, agents, actors and issues have been viewed and perceived and treated um, from you know, Iran to the Muslim Brotherhood, Islamist movements. And in almost all the cases, I find significant differences. There are no two chapters that are alike. Um, there is no, in my opinion, there is no, no actual, um, there, there are similarities, but there is no equal perceptions of any issue or danger in any two of the Gulf monarchies. And then in the last part of every chapter, I try to sort of uh, bring a a conclusion uh, to sort of extrapolate then what is the priority issue what is the priority threat um and and it's almost never what it seems in a way and it, it, it always goes back to what i call structural vulnerabilities of a country mm -hmm. um, sometimes they are socioeconomic sometimes they are socio-political but uh there's always more to more than meets the eye let's say and that variety is actually a very interesting finding in and of itself. Uh, we often speak about the Gulf as a unified bloc, maybe with the exception of Qatar, but I think your research shows pretty clearly that it's not in that sense. I mean, yeah, that, that has been uh, my um, sort of my findings because even Oman and Kuwait, um, they're always sort of brought together. And of course, you know, you do that sometimes because um, you want to make analysis easier and it is useful sometimes for um, sort of pedagogical purposes. But um, then, you know, when you sort of make it uh, a point of digging deeper and going in, uh, really at a sort of uh, sort of advanced analysis, you find very significant differences between the two countries. And this is not just because they are obviously very different um, institutions and uh, they have very different histories as well, but it's really down to a, a, a number of other factors from um, the um, societal uh, sort of composition and uh, the sort of legacy of the, the the foundational myth of the countries that are obviously very different. Um, the, um, the people who participate uh, to the decision-making process and where they come from. So it's a, it's a number of, of issues that then sort of explain how even when they take positions that are similar, for example, vis-a-vis -vis the uh, political boycott and economic embargo of Qatar, both Kuwait and Oman took a very similar position, um, you know, from the from the outside. Then if you want to go a little bit behind that uh, position, you see that the motivations were very different, the mm -hmm. modalities were very different. And the way that uh, the positions were described um, and why they were taken were very, very different.
And I think one of the things which is interesting there is that in line with a lot of the other kind of recent literature, um, you're kind of agnostic on what the primary source of the perception of threat is. It could be international, it could be domestic, it could be, as you said, societal. You also talk about something which you which you call uh, ontological security, which has been something discussed in some of the IR literature recently. And so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about how you think about security at the theoretical level and how you put these different levels together. Yeah, sure. So uh, again, one thing that I really wanted to do was to uh, describe um, the the variety of um, how an issue is perceived from a security point of view. And so I use the categories of Barry Buzan. Um, so I, I say, you know, a threat has can have different dimensions, a political dimension, a military, a societal, economic, a environmental uh, dimension. However, uh, in my sort of research, my hypothesis is that the priority in the Gulf is always the political dimension. So if the threat only has, for example, um, an economic dimension, but that doesn't really have a clear cut political dimension, is deprioritized vis-a-vis um, -vis other issues who, mm -hmm. which do have a clear-cut political dimension. Um, then the other thing that I really wanted to unpack is this internal-external dichotomy, because I do think that um, it's a little bit simplistic, again, in the specific context of the Gulf, to only uh, talk about internal or external threats. And so I've used this... Uh, term which has been used has been introduced uh, by uh, Victor Cha in uh, a paper that talks about environmental security so it really has nothing to do with um, what I talk about in my book uh, which is intermestic and what the the author meant by that is and what I mean by that um, is that an issue specifically in a region where the borders are so porous like the Middle East and North African region um, has um, you can have issues that are at the same time external and internal, so international and domestic. And in other words, they become intermestic. Sometimes they mm -hmm. have originated abroad in another regional country, uh, but they have a clear um, in, a clear way of, um, of developing and spreading and growing inside the borders of the country. Um, and that, you know, is especially, I think, especially uh, useful when we look at perceptions, which, again, can be different from, obviously, uh, an objective uh, analysis of a security threat. But in the perceptions of the regional leadership, um, many, many issues and dangers are described uh, in such a way. They are, for example, you know, um, the Muslim Brotherhood obviously originated outside the Gulf, but there are indigenous groups that sometimes have links, sometimes only take inspiration from the Muslim Brotherhood, but they have been treated as a threat, for example, in the United Arab Emirates, uh, because there was this additional layer of, of, of danger perceived that was uh, expressed in a way a, a little bit like the issue, the root of the issue 
are outside of our control because they are outside of our borders. And the fact that there was this external support or external um, dimension uh, of of a danger or external connection of the danger of a group uh, always made um, the regime react more forcefully. So my hypothesis is that actually intermestic threats, um, just like political dimension threats, uh, do take priority over others. And then, of course, the Arab Spring and that wave of revolutions, it activates that in all kinds of interesting ways. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, uh, it was very clear that, you know, from from the point of view of the Gulf monarchies, I mean, if you look at how um, if you look at how th these issues are talked about now, um, it is it is very, very distant from how it was lived in that time. At the time, in 2011, the first thought and the first concern uh, was that it would spread like a wildfire from Tunisia. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and it had obviously already spread to Egypt and spread to Libya and then to Syria and then, you know, very quickly to Bahrain. And so it seemed like uh, this would really be beyond any one country's control, any one state's control. Um, and that really uh, accelerated and and um, amplified the security perceptions in every one of the of the Gulf governments, especially when um, the the revolution in Bahrain um, happened or or was about to happen, and it really looked like um, that the the street um, movement would topple the regime. Um, then you know all bets were off, uh, and uh, and now you have instead you know in today's rhetoric you have this sense of self confidence in a lot of these Gulf monarchies that this movement could not have spread or could not have toppled their systems, but the the reality is that at the time they absolutely thought it would. Uh, the only one exception was of course Qatar, and the the fact that. Qatar viewed the whole movement differently is, you know, I would argue the real source of how just how different Qatar's security perceptions and therefore Qatar's policies have been over the past 12 years. Because um, one of the things that I really sort of one of the assumptions that I carry with me in the book uh, from the point of view of the theoretical framework is a point that has been sort of embraced by the area literature for a few decades already, which is that in this region, um, security perceptions are one of the most important factors informing policy behavior. And, you know, it has, I think, in my opinion, it has manifested in several ways over mm -hmm. the past 12 years. And of course, you know, with the political boycott and economic embargo of Qatar, but also the policies towards Iran and also the domestic policies to really crack down on Islamist movements. And in other countries like Oman or Kuwait, um, you know, alongside this crackdown, also a lot of um co-optation and mm -hmm. co-optive behavior uh, to, again, manage these issues. Um, and here, you know, the other difference that I introduce from a theoretical point of view is the intensity of the danger that is perceived. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the same issue can be seen as a threat, 
from one government and as a risk from another government. And I think it's important to try and make this distinction because otherwise we don't are not we're not fully able to explain the different policies towards the same issue um, in one gov in, in one country or by one government and and vis-a-vis -vis the others. Um, and I think it's very it's a it's a very simple explanation, but it works very well. It's just that the intensity is is quite different. Right. And so the, the empirical heart of the book is a series of, of, of case studies where you go into real depth in each of the individual countries. But I thought it might be useful here to maybe instead begin by talking about the kind of the periodization, you know, because it's pretty clear 2011 to 2013, kind of the 24 after 2014 is kind of a different thing. And then you get the reconciliations later on. Maybe could you talk a little bit about how this plays out in each of those historical eras? Yeah, I mean, correctly, you correctly pointed out, I think there is one uh, early period, which is between 2011 and 2013. And this was perhaps the sort of the shock and awe time of mm -hmm. the Arab Spring and the different countries adapting to the new realities. So this is the time where you have a lot of generalized sense of insecurity and a lot of uh, sort of quite assertive and, and, and coercive behaviors, um, but also like some confusion in terms of security perceptions were not really formalized in the uh, different aspects um, in the different dimensions of the danger in different sort of level of priority or the even the level of intensity. There was just a generalized sense of everything and everyone can be a threat to stability. So then there is the transition period, which is 2013, 2014, mm -hmm. which is the first two so-called Riyadh agreements between Saudi Arabia um, and the UAE and on the other side, Qatar, mediated by Kuwait, uh, then also Bahrain and Oman joining in as, as signatories, as, as witnesses to, um, to the process. Um, and in that time, this is in this phase between 2013 and 2014 is when things start to become clear and mm -hmm. and the, the regimes start to sort of define their priorities and um, point uh, out which specific actors um, constitute in their perceptions a threat and which kind of threat. And then afterwards, after 2014, uh, you have a period between 2014 and 2017 in which um, you have, on the basis of these sort of initial ideas, you have a lot of assertive behaviors um, by the Gulf monarchies all around the region, the Middle East and North Africa region, um, and also to a certain extent internally. Uh, but it is really 2017, the time where all of these sort of uh, crescendo builds up and to the sort of maximum point of the political boycott and economic embargo against Qatar. And at the same time, domestically, a lot of crackdown and it's insignificant um, policies that really want to securitize uh, different issues uh, and and sort of make the regime feel safer. Uh, that period, which starts in 2017, obviously uh, sort of starts waning down around the 
end of 2019 uh, with, uh, you know, a realization of perhaps uh, having um, overstepped regionally of perhaps uh, mm-hmm. uh, in the case of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates having picked a confrontation with Iran that they were not equipped to fight uh, at the same level that Iran was uh, willing to to bring it to um, with, you know, the attacks against different critical infrastructures in the UAE against uh, Abqaiq and Khureis and other critical infrastructures in Saudi Arabia. So sort of having reached a point of um, overcommitment and and scarce results, and that is the final time, the final period uh, that my book covers, which is what I called a strategic pause. I do think that you know the detente that we have seen um, being signed between Saudi Arabia and Iran, but also sort of a detente between Saudi Arabia and Qatar and the UAE and Qatar um, is part of a strategic pause. I, I think it is quite fragile and it remains vulnerable to both ex- external and internal shocks. Um, and it needs a lot of work to become solid uh, because ultimately my um, sort of book, which you know brings it all back to the security perceptions. And so my argument towards the end of the journey that, that I, I, I make in the book is that Yes, these security perceptions definitely have changed over Mm -hmm. the past 12 years. And I try to show the way in which they have changed and the evolution evolution process. And so most of the dangers, yes, they have been uh, now uh, sort of uh, um, deprioritized and they are less intense. And some of these issues uh, who which were perceived clearly as political threats now are more um, more commonly perceived as risks. However, the structural vulnerabilities that have enabled these dangers to be perceived as threats to really become to to take that extra step and be seen as things that can actually affect the stability the functional integrity mm-hmm. uh and and uh, the um, activities of of a regime um have not been addressed most of these structural vulnerabilities that i sort of point out in the book uh, are really still there uh, in in most of the countries, so that means that we cannot really say that this is a time of stability and that you know it will uh, usher in an era of of uh, sort of peace and and detente and um, and and that would change everything. So we can't really say that unless these structural vulnerabilities are really addressed. And I don't think they have been addressed. You know, it's so fascinating, you know, to to hear you speaking about this through the language of vulnerabilities, because the, you know, the narrative that you often hear coming out of the Gulf is of this new hyper-competent Gulf. Uh, the Gulf is now the dominant center of power in the Arab world and in the Middle East. Um, autonomy from the United States being treated as regional uh, kind of great powers, all these things. And that combination of kind of power and perceived vulnerability really does seem to be a unique kind of a combination that you're tracking here. Yeah, I mean, I'm aware that uh, that sort of the findings of my book uh, somehow collide with, you know, the general narrative um, about 
the, the rising Gulf monarchies. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that uh, the Gulf monarchies are definitely rising as geopolitical actors. I do believe that some of them are very well placed to become regional leaders. Some of them are actually very well placed to play a global game. And by the way, this is about this is my my last chapter. My final chapter mm -hmm. is really about how the Gulf monarchies have been between 2011 and 2020 have become sort of uh, uh, well placed to be regional leaders between 2020 and 2030. They will start uh, to play the global game. And mm -hmm. I, I do think that they are. Um, rising middle powers and they will they are equipped to play um, the global game but that you know it doesn't mean that uh, that they don't have vulnerabilities every country in the world has vulnerabilities including the United States um, they have you know different ones I think that in some cases the socio-economic and socio-political vulnerabilities that I see in the Gulf monarchies are um, in a way uh, more entrenched and therefore they're not they're not superficial they are really sort of deep rooted and therefore you know they you need to be aware of them uh, in order to make sense of not just the policy behaviors but also be able to in a way make a scenario or sort of spot trends and see how um, an issue could impact these countries. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. We'll be right back with Cinzia Bianco. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast, and we're back with Cinzia Bianco talking about her new book on the Gulf monarchies uh, after the Arab Spring. And we've been speaking about broad trends within the region. But as I said before, like the heart of your book really is these detailed uh, case studies. So let's talk about some of the individual cases and the ways that these monarchies navigated these, uh, these divergent security perceptions and the like. And maybe we could start with some of the most active ones or in, in the eyes of many people, probably some of the most surprising ones. Why don't we start with the UAE and how it emerged in the way that it did and why it made the choices that it did? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I think, you know, the UAE was one of the most interesting case studies because, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. The first surprising thing to notice for me was when I looked at how the UAE um, saw the Arab Spring, I... I noticed that, you know, yes, in the beginning, they, the UAE's leadership was concerned about um, the chance of the Arab Spring spreading to the UAE and posing a challenge or rather a risk to the regime. Um, but uh, I would argue that it quickly, uh, first of all, realized that um, the groups that it was confronting um, were not really organized to bring down a, a sort of a quite a, a structured regime like um, the one that the UAE has. Um, and then they realized that there were two different groups that were active. One was uh, a bunch of Emirati liberals who really wanted to um, see to have more um, more uh, sort of the spread decision making and, and more political and civil civic freedoms. Um, but they were not really willing to have a upfront attack to the system. 
The other group was identified as uh, related to the Muslim Brotherhood, and the regime cracked down really, really hard on this on this group, which was actually just an informal network, and again, really had uh, no ways of bringing down the, the the regime itself. So the first sort of thing that surprised me was how hard the UAE cracked down on. Uh, a movement or a risk that really was not existential for yeah. the re the regime and 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 then the second sort of aspect to that was how hard the UAE confronted uh this issue this danger uh this movement the islamist movements regionally and so to see a very small country take on a, a regional uh sort of uh, um, mission and mandate of fighting the the islamist um resurgence or the islamist um success everywhere from egypt to then tunisia uh to even to syria uh, to a certain extent you know really regionally then that was what um that was an element that made me think a lot about the uae's ambitions and how it was clear that they mostly saw this as an external threat but they were still willing to um to some extent pre prioritize it um for for a specific period of 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 time uh, in a way that was well beyond their capabilities as a small state and in fact you know it did lead to then a rethink um in in a in a after afterwards um mm -hmm. but the interesting thing is that they still succeeded in pushing back against a number of islamist movements all around the region while be, being a, a small country um, and then the other interesting sort of finding had to do with how they saw Iran and how, mm -hmm. you know, that uh, had changed uh, throughout the 10 years that mm -hmm. we take into, into consideration. Um, and again, there was never a clear-cut internal dimension to um, the so-called Iranian threat from uh, the UAE's per perception. And point of view, um, because there, there was nothing that was comparable to groups that were linked to Iran and that had a, some sort of revolutionary or anti-status quo agenda in the UAE. Uh, on the contrary, you know, uh, the, the groups within the UAE, the Emirati networks that have connections to Iran, either by um, historical uh, links or sociological uh, networks, they have uh, a clear-cut interest in maintaining status quo because they have been able to work very pragmatically uh, between the two countries, between the UAE and Iran, for, for very many years. Um, but the most interesting finding, I think, in the whole chapter, which is the one that I really address in the mm -hmm. final section of this chapter, is that we sort of talk about how different um, different Emirates within the UAE see uh, issues differently. But when you sort of focus on that and you sort of look at in details how uh, Islamist movements or Iran are perceived differently in Dubai, in Sharjah, in, in Abu Dhabi, in an historical context, it makes all of the difference because you see that um, to make a coherent 
policy out of these very, very different and divergent perceptions is a challenge in and of, in and of itself. And I think it's not a case that the UAE's leadership, in particular uh, Abu Dhabi's leadership, has really made it a priority to centralize decision-making mm -hmm. as much as possible. And I think that is the core focus of, of that leadership because they are absolutely aware that fragmentation across Emirates is a major vulnerability um, and that they need to do their, their best to address it. But this is an ontological vulnerability because it is something that uh, is not new. It's actually sort of uh, the foundation of the country. And it's been like this since day one. So to close this divergencies and to make a coherent, a single coherent actor of these different um, pers pers perspectives and different, uh, um, even if small, but different centers of power is, is quite a significant challenge, I think. Yeah, you have a, uh, an observation in there that really jumped out, which was about uh, citizens in some of the other emirates um, being upset that their, that their boys were going and fighting and dying in Yemen for a war that Abu Dhabi chose. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's a story from a couple of years back, but at the time it was really um, everyone was talking about it. Everyone was saying that, you know, that there was a lot of discontent in the different Emirates, especially the Northern Emirates, because uh, they ended up being the rank and file of the UAE army and, and they were, you know, really bearing the cost of of the war and in, in fact shortly after one of the most significant incidents in which um dozens of emirati troops lost their lives um the uae did decide to take a step back and be mm -hmm. less involved in in military operations in yemen now, many people who watch the Arab Spring unfold, uh, they generally saw UAE and Saudi Arabia marching in lockstep. But I think your book shows pretty clearly that there are some pretty significant divergences in security perceptions and threat perceptions between uh, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi. Yes, um, there is. There are significant differences. Um, and I think they there always were significant differences. Even in 2017, when uh, um, the Saudi leadership and the Emirati leadership basically seemed uh, exactly, um, you know, in agreement, in full agreement on all of the different security issues in the region, I think even at that time, their priorities were different. Um, I think for Saudi Arabia, the priority was um, confronting Iran. And for the UAE, the priority was confronting uh, the Islamists, uh, and in particular Qatar and Turkey as supporters of this Islamist movement. Um, and so basically they decided to work together and they decided to support each other and to have shared policies, but always maintained that these different priorities. And I think they have emerged uh, over the, the following years um, because, for example, you know, let's not forget it was the UAE which reaching out to Iran first months before Saudi Arabia did. 
Um, it was the UAE deciding to um, step back from their involvement uh, in mm-hmm. Yemen and from uh, confronting specifically the Houthis um, and actually trying to sort of come to an understanding even with the Houthis via Iran and not directly. Um, it was the UAE, the first one, uh, the Emirati leadership uh, inviting a, a number of Iraqi politicians who are well, very well known to be uh, very working very, very closely to Iran. Um, and so uh, obviously the reaching out, the outreach to uh, the Syrian regime, it was led by the UAE. Mm-hmm. So it showed after a couple of years that actually the UAE did not fully subscribe to a confrontation only approach that Saudi Arabia was undoubtedly pushing between in particular 2017 and the the end of 2019. I mean, we all um, remember the speeches by uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I have a a number of quotes uh, taken from different speeches um, and the way that the Iranian threat was described was absolutely existential, was confrontation only, compromise never. For the UAE, it was different. And it was the opposite for Saudi Arabia. So after a couple of years, it was Saudi Arabia um, deciding that uh, that the political boycott or an economic embargo against Qatar was enough um, and that they needed to patch things up and that it didn't make sense to actually um, cut out Islamist movements from everywhere in the region. And in fact, the Saudis to this day maintain a working relationship or at least a dialogue, a political dialogue with um, uh, Islamists, uh, for example, in Yemen, al-Islah, uh, whereas you know the Emiratis absolutely would not want to engage with al-Islah. It's really, really fascinating to get the intricacies of that relationship, uh, which was so central to the post-Arab Spring uh, kind of regional politics. Why don't we at this point jump over to the other side of that divide and maybe talk about Qatar a little bit and what it thought it was doing and what security needs it thought it was filling um, as it uh, became so adventurous uh, going forward? Yeah, I mean, that case because it was again super really surprising to see you know really uh, step by step and in details how qatar basically did not perceive any um existential political threat uh, between 2011 and 2017 um actually you know with a, a brief interlude in 2013 2014 where things you know that there was a bit more concern um but then you know it subsidized and then and then it emerged very prominently in 2017 because Qatar did not perceive a threat uh, coming from the Arab Spring. Even the local right. small movement of 70 Qataris, uh, sort of mostly liberals, um, also uh, Islamists, but basically sort of talking about how to better spend uh, the state resources um, and how to preserve some of, you know, sort of how to reconcile the government priorities with the, the society's priorities with, you know, some interesting thinking. Uh, I have a few quotes uh, from a, a book that is basically the the reference, the, the reference point for the literature of the Qatari Arab Spring. Um, 
and uh, the way in which uh, this group thinks about um, reforms and and what are their priorities uh, is quite interesting. But you you can clearly see that they have zero interest in upsetting the status quo. And of course, you know this is because there are no major fault lines within Qatar. There are no major socio-economic vulnerabilities in the sense of inequalities. There are no major socio-political vulnerabilities in the sense of major um, societal sectarian uh, divisions uh, uh, within the society. Uh, it's a it's a rather homogeneous society if you look at citizens, um, and all of these citizens have access to a lot of economic opportunities. Obviously, in different ways. The closer you are to the top, the more opportunities you'll get. And there are groups that are sort of less. Um, uh, that they have less privileges, but still, you know, the 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 starting point is that it is a very privileged population, and they make an effort of being homogeneous. There is one small exception to that rule, which of course then emerges as the structural vulnerability for Qatar, and it was leveraged by external actors in 2017, and that is the tribal structure of Qatar. Um, the fact that, you know, that there the, it was originally um, a, co a collection of different tribes, some of these tribes um, already had historically a political role uh, that is sort of against the status quo and against the ruling family. Um, and that has provided for context uh, and also for a sort of an in for external actors, in that case, um, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, to try and leverage this one fault line into the Qatari society against the ruling family. So it, it was a very clear test case for, mm -hmm. what I'm, uh, for what my argument is, that if you have a structural or, or ontological vulnerability, that is usually your sort of uh, uh, trigger point for uh, more, more serious threats and even political and existential threats. Um, and this was really the only one because the others, you know, the way in which Qatar worked, uh, looked at Iran or looked at the Muslim Brotherhood, actually the Muslim Brotherhood was of course seen as an opportunity because it was a network that they could leverage for their own political and geopolitical political gains. Um, Iran is seen very pragmatically. Uh, there are a number of risks that uh, are posed by Iran and have been historically, but the Qataris have ways to neutralize these risks and have ways to uh, work with, with Iran more, more pragmatically. So it was, again, very interesting to see how mm -hmm. the, the picture looked completely different from every other country. Now, I mean, you obviously have, um, you know, very detailed and rich chapters in Bahrain of Saudi Arabia, but I actually want to ask you now about one of like the, uh, I don't know exactly the right word for it, neutral or mediating states. Why don't we talk about Kuwait and kind of how it fits into your model? Yeah, sure. Um, Kuwait was, um, was a, a, a very um, challenging chapter uh, to write because you kind of have to get rid of as a number of assumptions that that you can use that you can rely on when you look at the other um, GCC monarchies, and that's 
because of the institutional system in, in Kuwait. Um, the fact that, you know, the, the National Assembly is not just about how much decision-making power does the Assembly have. That's not really, that's not the point. The point is that the idea of an assembly and of a collective um, sort of collective space or collective dimension to decision making is really inscribed in the country's history and DNA. So the the parliament, the assembly, um, is as old as the country itself in its modern mm -hmm. history. Um, and so the idea that the ruling family always had to balance um, their perceptions with the, the, the public perceptions expressed via um, their elected representatives um, changes completely the picture. Also provides for a resilience mechanism that uh, is still to this day is not present in any other of the Gulf monarchies because that uh, the, these elections are a pressure release button that uh, has worked um, over the past 12 years to really uh, downgrade threats uh, put, or potential threats into risks or potential risks. Um, and that has been, I think, the case with Iran and also with uh, Islamist movements. If you look, for example, at some of the episodes that happened in Kuwait, such as um, the terrorist attack against um, the most important Shia mosque in the country, mm -hmm. and then you contextualize that into a history of also societal tensions between uh, the Shia and the Sunni. Yes, of course, the Shia are quite integrated in Kuwait, both from an economic point of view, some of the most important merchant families in Kuwait are Shia, and from a political point of view, some of the most significant uh, roles, institutional roles, um, are uh, have been historically uh, have been assigned to Shia individuals. However, there is also a history of uh, societal tensions that is related to, um, for example, the invasion, um, the Iraqi invasion, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, but also the Islamic revolution in Iran. Mm -hmm. Just like this played a role in Saudi Arabia, in Bahrain, it also played a role in Kuwait uh, in, the 70, in the late 70s and in early uh, 80s, there were a number of groups, including um, military groups that were paramilitary groups that were active uh, against the ruling family. There was um, an attempt uh, to the life of uh, uh, the emir by a group that is a Shia paramilitary group um, that has clear connections to Iran. So you have a contentious history, and then you have these societal tensions. You have different communities. You have a strong Lebanese community that obviously bring with them some of their own historical memories from Lebanon and the civil war there. Um, and then you obviously have direct, directly border Kuwait, um, Iran, and Iraq. And then into this context, you factor in a terrorist attack against the most important Shia mosque, and yet you don't have any significant uh, societal threats or threats to societal stability. You don't have any significant flare-ups um, in the fabric of the country. 
Um, and I think that's very, very significant. Mm -hmm. And that's because there is a sense of, of collective that goes uh, beyond uh, and goes deeper than I would argue in any other of the Gulf monarchies. That's super, super interesting. You know, we could talk in more detail about Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Oman, but I actually wanted to ask one final question now, um, which goes a little bit beyond the scope of your book, but I think would be of interest to a lot of people listening to this, which is, you know, thinking about Gaza, thinking about the Abraham Accords, the U.S. obsession with trying to try and create Saudi-Israeli normalization, um, which would presumably come with the U.S. security pact for the Saudis. How do you read these dynamics through the lens of a theory you developed in your book? So um, I think, you know, it's significant, especially, you know, we're looking at the at the Saudi case, because I would argue this is really the only um, the only country, perhaps in the entire Arab world, that um, is seriously thinking about normalizing relations with Israel. Um, and that that is obviously, you know, a factor of um, the, obviously related to a security pact with the United States. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I do think it has a lot to do with how, you know, beyond the narrative, they do still feel vulnerable. Um, and, you know, we haven't talked about their so-called external vulnerabilities um because but but they are because, you know, they are quite obvious in the sense that Saudi Arabia, has always had an external security guarantor uh, since you know uh, very contemporary times um, they have started thinking about a world in which they can rely more on themselves to for their own security but the reality of it is that the system in the system a lot of individuals still think about uh themselves and their country as a country that is a vulnerable country in a very tense region. And so they still think that, you know, that they should have an external guarantor because um, mm -hmm. they need to rely on, uh, because they are an actor of global importance and therefore, you know, global actors should be interested in their, in their stability. I think it does speak about the fact that uh, the Saudi Arabia does not feel uh, does not feel as super hyper confident as it sometimes tries to portray, um, and uh, and that's clear in the fact that that they are also very wary of their detente with Iran. You know, mm -hmm. um, there is I think you know they're trying to make the best out of this detente. Uh, they're investing a lot into making this work and having a pragmatic relationship. But I believe that for several years, they have believed in a confrontation-only approach. I don't think they, they can switch from that to a engagement-only approach. I think they're looking for a balanced approach hmm. that has, at the same time, the engagement element and the confrontation slash deterrence element. Um, and that's, you know, that's because, that's because as, as you can read in my book, uh, Iran mm -hmm. is an existential threat for the Saudi regime. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Cinzia Bianco about her new book on the Arab monarchies after the Arab Spring. And this has been the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah.